So we've been talking about for the last few weeks how to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what that looks like. And we're going to talk about that idea this morning. Followers of Jesus love the poor. Now, I don't know what you think of when I talk about someone being poor. You think of a person with a cardboard sign standing at the entrance to your favorite store or restaurant. Will work, won't work, take anything you can give me. You know, God bless you, former vet, whatever. I mean, you see the signs. And, and that's sometimes all we think of when we think of poor people. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever been poor? Was there ever a time in your life you experienced poverty? I've been poor in my life. I didn't grow up poor, but once I got married, I got really poor. And uh, seriously, serving in ministry, we served in a little church outside of Tyler, Flint Baptist Church. And it was a tiny church then. It's a big church now. But uh, we were poor. I made a whopping $11,000 a year serving full-time in ministry in the mid-80s, okay? And that was a little, you know, money different than I get that, all that, but it still wasn't very much money to live on. We'd go to the grocery store, and I'd say, okay, you'll get the frozen pizzas, and I'll get the corn dogs, and I'll meet you back here, you know? And then we'd try to make it seven days, and we'd come back, and our friends would go out and eat, and they'd be like, hey, y'all want to go out and eat? And I was like, are they giving away food at the restaurant? Because, you know, you don't want to say to your friends who have a lot more money than you, oh, sure, but we really can't afford it. Oh, we'll buy your meal. We'll buy you. No, no, we're, we're going home tonight. We've got corn dogs at the house or bologna or something, you know. So I don't make a lot of that. We, we've been poor in our lives before. When we were at that little church, uh, you guys may know Jonathan and Lacey Holcomb. They go to church here. Jonathan's our current chairman of deacons. Jonathan was a teenager. He was actually in my youth group there at the, at the Flint Baptist Church. And his dad, Marvin, was our music minister. Marvin and Rose, his mom would drive over on Sundays and Wednesdays. He'd lead music with us. And, um, and Rose is a very generous person. Marvin is too. But I was, in the, I was in seminary at the time. And so I was, you know, facing every semester paying for seminary while we were eating corn dogs and frozen pizza and not having any real way to pay for seminary. And um, seminary figured it out. They figured out, like most colleges, you pay before you ever start. You can't actually finish the registration process until you pay, you know, no IOUs, no loans, you pay now. So I was facing those charges and knew that I was getting ready to go to school and was really trying to complete my education. And Marvin's wife, Rose, Jonathan's mom, came to me and handed me a check one Wednesday night for about 85% of what I needed for that whole semester. And I was like, wow. And, and people like her in my life at that little church would come to me on occasion and just give me money. Just say, hey, I know you're struggling. I know you guys are here serving the Lord. and We can't pay you anymore, but we just want to help you. So sometimes the way that we think of the poor is not actually accurate. There may be some of you today that are struggling with poverty. And it's not really just the poor that we're going to talk about this morning because we're going to look, look in Luke chapter 14, if you want to go ahead and take your Bible and, and turn there. And we're going to look at two verses, or, or three, uh, verses 12 through 14 there. But but in that whole passage, Jesus has been invited in this passage to have dinner at a leading Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. So it's a kind of a big deal. And they really invite Jesus there like they did so many times. I say they, the religious leaders. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to catch him doing something they can blame him and accuse him for. And this is no different. They invite someone there who has a disease, and they're kind of curious to see how Jesus is going to handle it. And Jesus always turns the tables on people because Jesus is just smarter than we are. He knows everything. So he knows the motives of our heart. He knew the motives of their heart. He knew why they invited him there. He wasn't fooled by any of that. And so he looks at him, he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they just stand there like they can't say a word. They're, they're totally quiet, you know? And he goes, well, if you have a son falls in a well or your animal falls in a ditch or something, don't you get them out on the Sabbath, even though you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath? Don't you save their life, you know? And 
So he heals this man and sends him on his way. And then Jesus talks about this, uh, this banquet setting therein. He says, you know, you guys came in today to the room and some of you went and sat closest to the host. You sat in the seat of prominence. He said, you really shouldn't do that. Really what you should do is come in and sit the furthest away. And then if you're someone the host wants to sit close to you, they'll invite you to come sit close to them and then you'll be honored. But instead, some of you have honored yourselves and you've taken a seat that doesn't belong to you necessarily. So in the midst of all of that, we're going to read these verses that have to do with loving and, and caring for the poor and the marginalized. So why don't you stand with me out of reverence for God and for his word. You can follow along on the screens or in your copy of God's word. Luke 14, beginning in verse 12. And it says, he also, Jesus said to the one who invited him, this is the leading Pharisee, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. So Jesus is talking about not just what it means to love the poor, because he doesn't just mention the poor. He mentions the maimed and the lame and the, you know, the blind. And so really what Jesus is talking about is how do we treat people who are marginalized? What does that even mean? Well, for most of us, I would say that not knowing every one of you personally, but for most of the people that attend Marbley Baptist Church, I would say we're pretty mainstream type people. Most of us don't live our life on the edges and the margins of life, but we probably know people who do. You probably know someone right now that you'd say, yeah, they're kind of off over here on the side for whatever reason. Maybe it's through a physical disability they have, or maybe it's just their, their economic level that they've reached in life or haven't reached in life and the troubles that go along with that. So what Jesus is talking about really is valuing people. Because any time in the Bible where it talks about Jesus commanding us to love someone or Jesus loving someone, it's the word agape. And that word literally means to place supreme value on someone. So what Jesus is saying is, you know, when you give a party, Pharisee, don't just invite the people that can do something for you. Actually invite people who can't do anything for you. Value them because they have value in the kingdom of God. So here's what I want you to grab from this this morning, that when we love marginalized people, it does three things in our life. The first thing it does is it realigns my priorities. So when we love people who don't have anything to offer us back, for whatever reason that they would be considered marginalized, it's a way for us to realign what really matters in our life. Jesus is basically telling this Pharisee how to not have a dinner party. <laughs> He's saying, you did it all wrong because you invited all the people here. And again, Jesus knows their motives. He's saying, you invited all the people here that could do something for you. They might probably invite you over to their house later. And then you guys could have this little social circle where you all kind of climb and get more important in each other's eyes and have more influence. And it's this little kind of circle of click that you have, right? And, and all of us know what that's like. We, we know what it's like to be included in the click or excluded from the click, wherever that was, whether it was in junior high, high school, or even as adults, we still know what that's like. Some people get invited, some people don't get invited, right? And so what Jesus is saying here is that you did it all wrong. It's not their net worth. It's not their physical condition that makes them valuable. Jesus lived this out all the time, this idea of agape love. He constantly showed people their value. And I think that's why people that the Pharisees called sinners actually wanted to be with Jesus. They actually wanted to be with him. They enjoyed being with him because I think when you were with Jesus in his physical presence, you sensed your value to him and thus your value in life. 
Jesus gives us our value. He tells us what we're worth. And so when I think about this, and you guys that were at high school camp last summer may remember this thing of this kind of mantra, I would say, that, that it goes like this. People matter more. Jesus lived that out. You read all the Gospels, and you're never going to find a time when Jesus didn't live that out. People matter more. Matter more than what? Well, here's this religious guy. The Bible says he's a leader. He's a ruler. He's somebody who's kind of come up the pecking order in the, in the Pharisee line. He has some influence. He's somebody important. But what he cares about most is inviting people to his house that can help him out as he continues to climb the ladder. He wants to be repaid. He expects to be repaid. And that's why Jesus is basically telling him you're doing it all wrong. His priorities are all out of whack. And sometimes, like him, those of us that are religious... We get our priorities out of alignment, and we care about things that aren't as important, as important as people. There's nothing more important in this world than people. Whether people are marginalized or whether they're mainstream, it doesn't really matter. What their net worth is doesn't really matter. What they look like, what they're capable of, what ailments they may have, none of that matters. That doesn't affect their value before God. And God, having created life, is the only one that can give its value. People often say, well, yeah, everyone's a child of God. That's not true. Everyone is a creation of God, loved and valued by God. But you only become a child of God when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then he adopts you into his family, the Bible says in John 1:12, And he makes you, he gives you the power, the right, the authority to actually become his child. So, yes, you have value. Jesus constantly shares that. And so his teaching is revolutionary. It's, it's confrontational. He's looking at this guy and he's saying, you're doing it all wrong. And he's telling us the same thing. Maybe we need to hear the same correction this morning that he's sharing with this Pharisee. Well, I think the greatest compliment that I ever got as a youth minister came from one of my friends who came here one weekend to lead, be one of the leaders for Spark Weekend. You guys, some of y'all have been host homes. Most of you students have been through that where you go with a small group of your friends for the weekend in somebody's house at our church and you study the Bible and you have an outside leader that comes in and they share God's truth with you, and you do life together for a weekend, and it's always a great time. It's a great weekend to be together, and I would always uh, want to get an evaluation from each of the leaders. Tell me what's going on in the life of these kids, and tell me how it went, how'd they respond, and so uh, I would have a written form, but most of my seasoned friends that were youth ministers would say, I'll just call you this week, you know, and they would, and they would call me, and they would tell me all the things that had happened and what all had gone on, and this one guy, he called me, and he said, listen, he said, I got to tell you, you have the coolest kids on the planet in your youth group. And I said, I know, I know that. I already knew that. He's like, seriously, I'm, I'm not kidding with you. He goes, your kids are so accepting of other kids. He's like, there was a kid, and I know you put him in my group on purpose. And he said, he didn't fit in. He, he would never, he wouldn't fit in any of the groups. He had a disability. And he said, but every kid in that group loved him and showed him value and included him in everything. And he said, and it wasn't fake. It wasn't just because I was watching or the host home was watching. He said, they genuinely love this kid. And he goes, I'm telling you, the kids in my snobby youth group wouldn't do that. So what you have is a really cool thing. And I said, well, you know what? That's what our church is like. Now, you guys are blessed in this service every Sunday because we get to see our special needs friends back here every single week in this service. And I thank God for Dale Hardy and Paul and Mandy Leggett and Chuck Youngberg and Seagal McConnell. You guys working with our special needs adults every week. We love you guys. Don't we? We love and appreciate what they do. Absolutely. Our, our church has had this ministry to special needs adults longer than I've been here. And I love that. 
Some churches would say, no, that's not important. Those are people that God loves and God says have value regardless, right? And so when we understand what Jesus is saying here, it realigns our priorities. We go, what have I been living for? What matters to me more than people in my life? Well, nothing should because that's what matters most. Sometimes we, we get it backwards. We use people and value things <laughs> and we should use things and value people. Jesus never got it wrong. He always had his priorities right and people were at the top of his priority list. Are they at the top of your priority list this morning? Do people matter more to you than anything else? If, if they do, it'll show in your life. Secondly, loving the marginalized or poor people in my life reminds me of the gospel. Because over and over again, when I love people who, who maybe I don't necessarily connect with or I don't have anything in common with necessarily, it reminds me of what God's done for me. So Jesus corrects the Pharisee and he's reminding everyone in that room that night, that day at the meal, what really matters. And he's reminding everyone in this room today the same thing. What really matters. So how does it remind me of the gospel? Well, showing hospitality to those who don't deserve it reminds me of what God did for me. Did I deserve to be valued like that? Do you deserve to be valued like that? You say, well, yeah, I deserve it. I'm part of God's creation. You don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> what I deserve, the Bible makes very clear what I deserve. It says that I deserve death. It says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So that's what I deserve. My sin earned me something very bad. That's death, separation from God. That's what I deserve. But when I love people who I perceive don't deserve it, and let's be honest, we probably all have people in our life that we go, they don't deserve for me to love them. Either they've done something that made us mad or offended us, or they're not enough like us, or we don't hang around with them, or they don't wear the same kind of clothes we do, or they have a bad odor to them, or they don't make as much money as we do, or whatever causes them to be on the margins in our mind, and we decide that we're not going to love them because they don't really deserve it. Now, nobody would stand on this stage and say that today, but that's the way we live. We live our lives like people don't really matter unless they're just like us in the mainstream. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying all people matter. Now, I'm not saying that you should reward irresponsibility. Part of what, part of what Christianity has done in my life has caused me to have a great appreciation for personal responsibility. Every single person has to decide whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. And some churches, I think, are making a huge mistake today to just get up and talk about the love of God and talk about Jesus dying on the cross and then just sort of leave it up to the people to figure out how they're supposed to get saved. Well, you'll figure it out. When you figure it out, it'll be, you'll be sincere about it. It'll be real in your life. So we're not really going to tell you. We're not going to have an invitation. We're not going to lead you in a prayer. We're not going to show you how to actually receive Christ in your life. We don't do that at Moberly. We know that people come to a point of decision and they may go, I don't know what to do now. So we want to lead you through that process so that you can pray a prayer to receive Christ. Not that there's anything magical about a prayer, but a prayer indicates your decision. It's a moment of personal responsibility where you go, I know I'm going to stand before God someday and I am personally responsible for me. No one's going to stand before me in front of me and say, no, I'll take Paul's punishment. Jesus already did that. But I'm personally responsible. You're personally responsible for the sin in your life. And I think because sin is so common, sometimes we minimize it and say, well, you know, everybody sins. Yeah, but if people sin against you, it, it's pretty offensive. If I came over to your house tonight and stole something that belonged to you, I guarantee you, you'd be mad, hurt, disappointed, frustrated. You'd be offended. Well, that's just one little thing. The God of the universe is offended by my sin, by your sin. And I have to be responsible to stand before God and say, what do I do about that? Well, I can pay for it forever myself in hell or... 
I can choose to receive Christ, make that personal decision, and he will take my sin and all the penalty for my sin and forgive me and give me right standing before him. So my Christianity informs the desire to be personally responsible. So it's easy then to look at people and go, well, some people are in the situation they're in, at least in poverty and those kind of things because of the decisions that they make. Have you ever thought that? Well, they're in that mess because of what they chose to do. Look how they spend their money. Look where their priorities are, right? And so that somehow excuses me from loving them, from helping them. I'm not gonna foster irresponsibility, but it doesn't change the fact that I can love them. And so now I have a conviction about that because I've walked with the Lord, but I have to also have compassion for people who aren't there yet, who haven't yet given their life to Jesus Christ. The second thing is that it shows showing hospitality to those who can't repay. It reminds me of what God did to me, for me. So I could never repay what God's done for me. You can never repay what God's done for you. And the good news is you don't have to, but you can't. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I owed a debt I couldn't pay. And so now I'm paying it for the rest of my life. No, you, you don't have to pay the debt. Jesus paid your debt. Your debt's paid. So you don't have to pay your debt. You don't have to wander around in life going, oh, I'm such a sorry sinner and I got to keep paying for my debt. That's not what it means to be a Christian. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, he forgives you and he forgets your sin. He removes it from you as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says, and remembers it against you no more. So you don't carry that debt around. You've been completely forgiven of that debt. This is what Samuel Johnson, Johnson the English playwright and philanthropist said. He said, the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. You've probably heard that quote before. It says a lot about a person, how they treat someone who can't help them. And that's what we think about. We think about marginalized people. They can't offer me anything. How do you treat them? Do you only treat people well who can help you? That's what the Pharisee was doing. And Jesus corrected him and said, those aren't the kind of people you need to invite into your home to have dinner with you. Those aren't the kind of people you need to show love to. Only you need to show love to people who can't repay you. And that's a picture of what the gospel is in my life. And so whenever I do that, it reminds me that that's what God's done for me. That's what God's done for you. So it's a tangible reminder. This is what Jesus said in Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what's good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. That's the way we're supposed to treat people. We're supposed to act like God showed us. We're supposed to show that to other people. And every time I do that, it reminds me that that's what God's done for me. It's a very tangible thing. Uh, several years ago, when I was serving at Flint Baptist Church, actually, we, uh, we got in the city of Gresham, which is just two miles back towards Tyler from Flint, they got a Dairy Queen. It's the only restaurant within 15 miles, okay? So it's kind of a big deal. I know, Dairy Queen, right? It was, it's a big deal. We'd go to Dairy Queen, and I would meet people there and have lunch and different youth workers and different things. I got there early one day, and I was going to meet this guy. And um, so there was already a couple of men in the restaurant, and they were having a conversation. It was a tiny little restaurant, and uh, you could hear everything. I wasn't really trying to listen to their conversation but it was kind of hard to not hear what they were talking about. And this was in the day before a cell phone. So I had nothing to do while I sat there. I couldn't do anything. I just had to sit there in quietness. So I'm sitting there trying not to listen to their conversation. But I heard this one guy say two words that I could not unhear. He said the words Green Acres. Well, I grew up at Green Acres Baptist Church in Tyler. And from my 
from my 10th birthday until my 18th birthday. Those eight years were so formative in my life, and it's a great church and had a huge impact on my life. And so when he said the words Green Acres, man, I perked up, and I was like really tuned in then. I was listening to what he said, and he said, yeah, he was talking to this other guy, and he said, man, my family and I have started attending Green Acres Baptist Church, and it is the best thing that we've ever done. And I'm thinking, I'm fixing to get up and go introduce myself to this guy because he goes to Green Acres. I used to go to Green Acres, and I'm going to talk to him about that. And the next thing out of his mouth kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. He goes, yeah, it's the best decision I've ever made. Move my family and go to Green Acres Baptist Church. He said, I've never done anything that was as good for my business as that. I was like, what? And he goes on talking. The guy sitting across him is kind of in disbelief. He's like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, oh, man. He goes, I have made all kinds of business contacts there. He goes, I network. I go to a Sunday school class. I sit and worship with these people. I've gotten so much business from this. It's the best thing I've ever done for my business. And the guy was kind of in disbelief, and I was too. Why? Because that's exactly what the Pharisee did. He said, I'll invite people into my life, over to my house, who can help me, who can do something for me. And Jesus is saying, no, don't do it that way. Invite people into your life, into your house, to have a meal with you who can't do anything for you. That, then you'll be like God. Then you'll be living out the gospel because the gospel, there's no expectation of repayment on your part when, the, when it comes to the gospel. So I can never repay what Jesus did for me. You can never repay that. But when I, when I supremely value people, I live out the truth of that, the message of the gospel. And the third thing is showing hospitality to those I wouldn't naturally choose to spend time with reminds me of what God did for me. So people that are marginalized, as I said before, most of us are kind of in the mainstream. We choose not to associate with people that are in the margins of life for whatever reason. And when I do choose to do that, or when God gives me that opportunity and kind of drops it in my lap, it reminds me that God chose to spend time with me and wanted to spend time with me and I didn't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. And I wouldn't, he, I don't know why he chose me except that he loves us. Let's face it. We tend to love people who are like us. And recently, my wife and I went out to eat at a restaurant and it's a couple months ago. And we go out just about every Sunday to eat somewhere. We have a favorite restaurant. And it was Veterans Weekend, and uh, so this particular restaurant had a thing going. I guess they do it every year where they feed veterans for free. If you were a veteran of one of the wars, you get to eat free, and pretty cool deal. And so, man, we went in there, and it was just noisy and crazy. And I guess when we walked up to the hostess, my wife didn't hear what the hostess said or something, and she said yes at the wrong time or whatever. Anyway, so they went and sat us down at this table. We're sitting at a table for four. And uh, there were just people everywhere. Everybody's got those caps on, you know, Vietnam War, Korean War, you know, World War II, whatever. And um, people are sitting around, and there's just a lot of noise. And we're sitting at this table for four. They're just, we're sitting across from each other. And all of a sudden, the hostess comes up and seats this guy with us. We don't know. We've never seen him before. He sits down. He's just as happy as he can be to sit with us. He starts talking at the top of his lungs. He's just excited. Hey, guys, it's Veterans Day. I come every year, and they give us a free meal here, and it's so awesome and so wonderful. And the guy is a serial cusser. I mean, he, every other word's blank this and blank that, and, you know, whatever, four-letter words are flying out of his mouth. And he's just smiling and happy. He tells me he just came from church. I'm not kidding. I'm not making it up. And he's just letting fly, you know, like Mussolini, whatever. He's just going on there, man, and he is cursing it up, and all of a sudden, he says, what do you do for a living? And I kind of said, here we go. I said, I'm a pastor. 
And he wasn't phased one bit by that, not one bit. He was like, oh, cool. Well, you know, I go to this church and whatever. He's talking about that. Anyway, very uncomfortable situation, okay? Probably I would have never chosen to have a meal with him on my own, right? But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking the whole time, God, I know why you did this. I'm too comfortable in the middle. This guy's, at least in my life, in my circle of influence, he's in the margin for whatever reason. And I need to be confronted with that. And so we tried to make the most of it. We talked about our relationship with the Lord and shared with him about Christ and, oh, yeah, 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 you know, and all that. And uh, yeah, I don't know if he ever got it. I have no idea. You know, I'm not sure. But then this other, then they come and seek this other guy. Somewhere back there, they asked my wife a question about doing this. And she obviously said yes, you know. And so they sat this other guy. He didn't say a word the entire meal. He just sat there and ate his food and got up and left. Not a word. But that other guy talked. We stayed for like 30, 45 minutes after we ate. And he just talked and talked and talked. God gave me an opportunity to confront me with what I need to be confronted with. And that is, I don't necessarily always choose to be with people that I don't choose to be with. And you probably are the same way. But I need to think about that because it's about realigning my priorities. That guy's important. That guy matters to God. He has great value to God. And the whole time I'm sitting there, God just reminded me of all this. And I'm sitting here thinking, I am such a hypocrite because I wouldn't have chosen this. And I was uncomfortable with it. I didn't even want it. But in the midst of that, God just humbled me and was like, I care about this man. I sent Jesus for this man, just like every other person in this restaurant. So I don't know about you, but when we intentionally sit down to do that, God speaks to us sometimes. So, you know, we think about Passion Week coming up. You guys got this in your welcome guide this morning, this insert for Passion Week. And we talked about it in the Marbley Minute, but it's a huge week around here. And why? Because we're going to share the gospel with lots and lots of people teenagers on Wednesday night. In fact, this coming Thursday night, our college group is going to have a thing with an evangelist who's coming in, a band, and they're going to do a special evangelistic thing because Easter week, most of the kids go home from college and go back to their houses and stuff. So they won't be here Passion Week. But Passion Week, on Wednesday night of Passion Week, this room is going to be full of teenagers, probably 800 to 1,000 teenagers we're praying for. And Pastor Glenn's going to do the cross service. He's going to build the cross and share the gospel. And it's amazing. We did this a couple of years ago over at Elevation. You could have heard a pin drop over there. The kids were quiet and listening because our men, our leadership in our church and women were walking the outside of that building and praying. And you can have that same opportunity here. You can fill this out in the back and say, hey, I want to come do that. I want to come pray on that Wednesday night. Or I want to come be a decision prayer partner. A lady after the last service said, I want to talk to some teenagers about Jesus. And I was like, put that on the card. We'd love to have your help. Don't sit it out. Sometimes people sit out Easter and they go, that's for all the hypocrites. They always come to church on Easter. Look, whatever brings them here, whatever brings them here, God loves them and values them, and we want them to be here. So come help us. Maybe serve on a Saturday or serve on a Sunday. Tend one and serve in another time or whatever. But I just say this, men especially, if you've got one that you're trying to reach, somebody in your life that God's laid on your heart, do your kids know who that person is? I mean, as a family, have you sat down together, and, and men, have you led your families to pray to ask them who they're seeking to bring to their events. Because there's a children's event, there's a youth event, there's something for everybody. To engage somebody who doesn't know the Lord, somebody who's in the margins maybe. Men, lead that time with your family. Do that at lunch today. Before you pray for your meal, pray for those people. Go around your table and say, who are you trying to bring? Who are you, who's the Lord put on your heart to bring Passion Week to one of those things? And lead your family in that way. You'll be blessed by that if you do that. And your kids need to see your leadership in that way. So I challenge you with that. Well, the last thing 
that loving the poor or the marginalized does for me is it reassures me of future rewards. Now, we don't talk much about rewards, and we often say, well, you know, heaven's my reward. Heaven's not your reward. Heaven's a gift. It's free. It's just a gift. There are rewards, though. The Bible talks about rewards. There's going to be a reward ceremony in your future where you receive rewards for the things that you've done for the Lord since you've come to know him. We don't think much about that. But it is coming in your future. This is what Paul said, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. The foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work or anyone's work that was built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it'll be lost, but he'll be saved, yet, as, uh, yet it will be like an escape through fire. So it's not judgment for whether you go to heaven or hell. It's judgment for believers, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that we're each going to be judged for what we did for the Lord. You remember Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talked about praying in public to be seen or giving, you know, tithes or offerings to be seen. He said, you have your reward in full. But Jesus talked a lot about your reward in heaven, your reward in heaven as a motivating thing for us. So I have a professor that when, when I was in seminary that used to tell this story about a dream he had. And it really kind of clarified this passage for me. And I've, I've shared it before. I'm going to share it again. He talked about in this dream that he, he was standing before this wall of fire and he had like this just pile of stuff in his hands. It was like nondescript. And on the other side of this wall of fire, he could see Jesus just motioning for him to come through the fire. And he said as he... In his dream, as he actually got close to the fire, he felt the heat of it, but as he stepped through it, it didn't burn him at all. And when he got on the other side of the fire, he looked down, and that whole big pile of stuff was like two or three gold rings and a couple of costly, precious stones. That's all he had. And he said he immediately gave those to Jesus. And that's a picture of what Paul's talking about here. You're not going to be, as a Christian, you're not going to be judged on whether you go to heaven or hell. The fire's not about hell. The fire is refining. It's, it's taking all the stuff we've done. Some of the things we do, we do for ourselves. Some of the things we do to be seen by men, like the Pharisee. But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Do it for the Lord purely. Whether anybody else ever sees it or knows about it or not, do it for the Lord. And then someday you'll be able to offer that to the Lord. Because if you think about it, there's no safety deposit boxes in heaven. There's no bank accounts or retirement accounts. There's no investments in heaven. Once you're there, you're there forever. Wonderful. But what would you do with those rewards? You offer them to Jesus. You'd lay them at his feet as a way of saying to him, I love you and I want to give this to you. This is what I have to offer you, not to be saved, but because I am saved. So I challenge you in your life to think about your own attitude about marginalized people. Now, I said a second ago, that the future for each of us involves rewards. If you don't know Jesus, your future is not bright. That's the bad news. But the good news is it can be because the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him or put their trust in him wouldn't perish, wouldn't go to hell when they die, but they'd be saved. And I told you a moment ago at Marvelly, we share the message of the gospel. That's good news. We share this message with people all the time because there's always somebody sitting here who needs it. A guy told me just a couple of weeks ago, he said, when you shared the gospel at the end of the service over two years ago, I had a relative who gave their life to Jesus Christ. They never walked down to the front, but they gave their life to Jesus Christ. So this is a serious moment. I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes and pray. If you're a believer already in Jesus Christ, would you just pray for the people around you? 
I want to tell you this morning that the thing that you're looking for, whether you know it or not, the thing that you're searching for is a relationship with God. That's the only thing that will satisfy you. If you know Jesus Christ, you can have a relationship with God because he'll forgive your sin. He'll take the offense of your sin away and make you accessible to God. You can go to God. You can actually talk to God and he'll talk to you. You can have that close personal relationship. So this morning, if you're willing to turn away from your sin, to just turn your back and abandon your sin and say, I want Jesus more than anything else, he'll come meet you right where you are and he'll save you and he'll forgive you completely of all your sin. And remember it no more. No more guilt over it. No more shame over it. Forgiveness and freedom looking forward. So today, if you're ready to receive Christ, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand where you're sitting. No one's looking around but me. I want to lead you in that prayer this morning. Simple prayer of salvation. The prayer doesn't save you. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's your way of communicating to God that you do trust him and that you want him to save you. So I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. You pray this prayer if you're ready to receive Christ this morning, and you mean it in your heart. He knows if you're sincere. Just say something like this. Dear God in heaven, I believe that you are, that you sent the Savior, Jesus, and that you want to save me this morning. And I'm sorry for my sin, all of it. I don't want it. There's nothing I want more than to be right with you today, to be forgiven. So would you come into my life now and save me? Help me live in a way that honors you. Change me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.